Here we go. We're going to read uh, 12 verses out of Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord or their lords. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadeah, repaired the gate of Yeshana, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzael, the son of Hananiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Herumaph, repaired. I'm doing pretty good so far. Are you guys with me? Is this compelling or what? <laughs> Stick with me. The son of Harumaf repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkajah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired. Another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloshesh, ruler Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired, he and his daughters, and we will stop there. I figured if I just read them with confidence, you might actually think I know how to pronounce these names. Father, help us. As we consider these words that recorded by the leading of your spirit, would you help us to uh, hear your voice and to consider what you would say to us, your people, uh, this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we read through the book of Jeremiah, we will come to certain points um, where you might think or be tempted to think to yourself like, why do we need to read this? Why does anyone need to read this? How is this helpful? And in what way exactly is this like God's word to his people um, for today? And that would be a totally legitimate thought or question to have. Um, My conviction, our conviction as a church family, if I may just say it, is that every word in scripture is God-breathed. That's actually what the Bible says about itself in the New Testament. Every word in Scripture is God-breathed. 
which is a pretty radical thing. I mean, the implications are, are radical. Every word that's been recorded in what we call the Bible has actually been inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit, for the upbuilding of his people. So what's up with Jeremiah, or excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 3? Now, okay, full disclosure, there will actually be one or two sections of Nehemiah that we will skip. In fact, some of you already asked me. I think some of you actually thought that perhaps we'll just skip this chapter this morning. And I thought about it. Like, yeah, we, we could probably just skip this chapter. It's just like a long list of random names. Like, what does God really want to say to us? And I prayed about it, and I felt like the Lord say, no, actually, I, I do want to say something. There's something significant in this. Um, and so I want us to think about it for a minute. Um, now, on one hand, it's, it is just a list of names. Um, and I would argue that what's obviously meaningful about it is that there was some organization going on. When God gave Nehemiah this vision to rebuild this wall and to do this, this thing that he had put on this man's heart, it wasn't just like, hey, this is a good idea, like, let's see what happens as if these, these sort of spiritual things just magically uh, take place. Now, there's, a very, there's a practical element to this. Nehemiah, it would seem, was a phenomenal leader. And he had a vision, and he knew how to organize people. And he, he didn't just say, hey, who's, who's for me? And I'm just going to go this way, and we'll just see what happens. Like, no, there was a very specific plan. It seems like he was an incredibly gifted project manager. And so you could say, well, that, that's kind of significant in itself, says something about leadership, says something about the practicality of the things that God does in history and in his church. And that in itself, I, I suppose, is a helpful principle. I do think, though, that there's, there's something else there. There's, some, there's something more to it than just that. And this is what I felt the Spirit of the Lord really press upon my heart for us this morning. The fact that the Bible not only in this chapter, but consistently throughout Scripture, mentions the names of specific people, says something about God's view of individuality. He calls specific people by name to participate in his life, his vision, the things that he's doing in the world and in his family. So I want to talk about the gift of individuality and the call to die to the autonomous self and follow Jesus in the way of sacrificial love. The gift of individuality and the call to die or deny the autonomous self and follow Jesus in the way of sacrificial love. Hmm, it is going to be cool. God affirms individuality. Let's start there. God doesn't just call a faceless mob to follow him, to participate in this work that he's doing. He calls specific people, families, names, individuals. And every one of those people are known by him, seen and valuable in his sight. 
And the fact that we have a list of names, it's not arbitrary. I think it's actually deeply theological and significant and meant to remind us that God does see individuals and he values the individual person. In fact, if you study the the development, the evolution of the concept of the person, you'll find that in fact it's actually a Christian invention, as it were. Uh, In the ancient world, this idea that an individual can be deemed a person of value was a radical concept. Uh, Particularly if you get into the first, second, and third century when you're dealing with people living in the Roman Empire, this this concept of individual quote-unquote personhood it simply didn't exist. You weren't considered innately, intrinsically valuable as a person merely because you existed, merely because you were created in the image of God. You only were valuable, you were only deemed a person if perhaps you were born into the right family, if you were male, if you were free. Then perhaps society So the empire, the powers that be might view you as someone deemed worthy of being considered an actual person. But if you were merely a slave, you weren't a person, not in the way that we think of personhood in our world today. You you were an object, you were a possession, something to be owned, exploited, thrown away. Bible comes along and begins to develop this radical, revolutionary concept that every single individual, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, we are all considered valuable in God's eyes. That's revolutionary. That says something incredible about God's view of, of your unique individuality. Now, this has been a challenging thing. Historically, I think the church has struggled to, to do this, to live this out, to, to embrace the value of the individual in the way we actually see God articulate uh, in the scriptures. For a few reasons, at least. Number one being um, when Oftentimes, when someone comes into the church, there's almost an immediate, uh, not explicit usually, but definitely felt uh, sense that there's an expectation to conform to a certain thing. I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, there was a very definite culture about the church that I got plugged into. I remember everyone wore suit and ties. Uh, and I kind of got into it, but initially I felt the shock of it. Like, I didn't wear a, a suit and a tie. I didn't own a suit and a tie. Um, but the pastor, there was, there was one pastor who was a rather short, very bold Italian man. And the other, the co-pastor, was a really big, tall black man. And together they were like, they, they, they created this really cool, dynamic culture that I knew nothing of. But very quickly I came and I realized like, oh, I'm, I'm sort of expected to conform to this particular image. And oftentimes when you walk into a community that's been sort of developing for a little while, a culture of its own, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to put it on anyone. But if you're coming in from the outside, you can feel that pressure to conform. 
particularly when it comes to the, the ethics of the Christian faith. People walk into a room like this and immediately they're worried that they might be found out. Someone might discover that there's something going on in their lives that doesn't perfectly conform with God's vision for human morality. And so you feel shame. You feel the pressure to cover up, to pretend, to keep up pretenses. And it's hard to be yourself when you step into an atmosphere like that. It's hard not to feel like you must hide for fear of rejection when you come into a culture that clearly has some unspoken expectations. And so I think, generally speaking, the church has struggled with that. We've struggled to know how to, to gracefully manage the tension of valuing the individual, whoever they are, wherever they're coming from, and actually still want to surrender to Jesus and uphold his vision and his ethic for human life. It's a tough thing. I think where we tend to, to get things twisted, turned around, is when we forget to engage with a person as a person long, long before we ever begin dealing with the problems of our life. We get it turned around. We say, you are first and foremost a problem to be solved. Oh, yeah, and you're a person as well, obviously. And people feel that. People feel when they walk into a place and everyone's looking at them as a problem because we've all got problems. And God knows we all come in with our junk. We begin to view each other primarily as problems versus people, persons, unique individuals that God values, loves, and sent his son to die for. Excuse me. Let me share this with you guys. So one of the other problems we have is that anytime God gives uh, his kids a good gift, we have this really bad tendency of wanting to improve upon it. Um, as if God doesn't give us good and perfect gifts, we always have to like, it's like me when I was a kid, I remember my very first remote control car. So awesome, it was a red Corvette. And uh, I drove that thing up and down the driveway just like until the thing eventually died. The battery died. Of course, I was convinced that I, it wasn't the battery, I need to open the thing up and like fix it. And I broke my remote control red Corvette. And this is what we do to many of the good things that God gives us. And so what we've seen historically, if I can get a little philosophical for a second, what we've done historically is taken the gift of the individual person and elevated it to something that's um, almost on the level of an idol, something that's more than what God ever intended it to be. And so then uh, you see the self-hijacked by modern thinkers. Can I read to you a little bit from Descartes and Kant? You guys into Descartes and Kant? You, you just love the French and German philosophers? So good. So good. Okay, so Descartes, it is said that Descartes privatized the self, the self by claiming that objectivity and certainty could be had by subjects who knew their own minds. I think, therefore, I am. Okay, that was Rene Descartes. The self, the person, 
exist in so much as they are able to think autonomously, think objectively for themselves. And they reduce being personhood down to a matter of the ability to reason. That was Descartes. Kant, about 200 years later, it said that he secularized the self by proclaiming it as an autonomous knower and doer. That is, the knowing subject orders the world it experiences with categories of theoretical reason. The moral subject orders its freedom with categories of practical reason. So he built on Descartes and said that not only is the person, the being, the unique being exists insofar as they're able to objectify thought and reason in their minds, but as well as their ability to practically navigate morality. It, he, set, he paved the way for utilitarian ethics. And if you know anything about Kant, you know that it was Nietzsche who radicalized the thinking of Kant. About 100 years later, he was the one... Um, that took it to the next level, took it to its most logical end. In other words, the modern philosophical view of personhood, viewed being, being a person, in essence, to be a rational or objective, autonomous individual, which is to position oneself over and against the world out there. Reason, therefore, theoretical or practical, becomes an instrument of the, in, of the individual's will to power, not to Nietzsche. Understanding becomes a means of gaining control over some aspect of natural or social reality for the individual, as it's defined in that world, our modern world. Knowledge becomes a form of mastery. All that to say... In the world we live in today, we have been conditioned for the last several hundred years to think as personhood, as an autonomous state of being. That is to say that to be an individual is the, is the, is the pinnacle of what it means to be, to be a person. Self-expression is the pinnacle of being. If you're allowed to freely express who you think you are according to how you think and view the world around you, then that's what it truly means to be a person. And that's a problem because that takes us well off God's vision for what it means to be, to be a person, a person that is valuable in the eyes of God. Let me read to you from the book of Galatians. This is Paul's attempt to articulate, and that's not right. This is what God has said about his vision for personhood in Jesus. It says in uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are all Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise you are all sons Meaning in God's eyes, you are all of supreme worth. 
Because again, in the ancient world, to be a daughter, to be a slave, to be a Gentile would have been deemed to be worthless. But in Christ, now each individual person is viewed as infinitely valuable in God's eyes. No matter who you are, where you're coming from. Jesus affirms our individuality. And then he calls us to deny ourselves and to follow him in the way of sacrificial love. This is one of the great, wonderful paradoxes that we find in Scripture. God begins by calling us valuable, no matter where you're coming from. And I, I want to—I I keep emphasizing this because I'm so aware. That so many of us come into a room like this and you feel, you feel that pressure to be someone else. It's like the air we breathe, the sense of shame for not living up to someone else's standard. You're not enough, not in God's eyes, not in the person sitting next to you. And it's like, we don't know how to get it off of us. It's like it gets, it gets in, into our pores. We breathe it. We feel it. It's a constant weight we carry around with us. You're not enough. God will love you. He'll help you. He might even bless you if you get your junk together. If you become someone else. Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, but isn't that kind of true? Doesn't, doesn't Paul write elsewhere to imitate him as he imitates Christ? Yeah, yeah. And therein lies the paradox. What values us? Jesus would leave the masses to go and minister to the one. He would leave the crowd to go minister to the woman caught in adultery. The church had all condemned the one who failed to adhere to their religious standard. And they said, Jesus, what do you say? Do you condemn her as well? And he says, no, I don't. And if he did, he would have had to condemn everyone else. He was to be just in his standard. He says, no, I don't condemn you. And he ministered to the woman. He saw the woman. He heard the woman. He knew her story. And he had compassion for the woman anyway. And then he said, arise. Go and sin no more. He affirms her value and says, now I want to change you. Now I want to call you to die to the autonomous self and find a new identity in my life, in my love, in my way. And I want to teach you how to love people the way I love you and the way I've come to love others. I want you to learn the way of sacrificial love. 
And so we find this incredible, beautiful, very hard tension at work as we follow Jesus together. You come in a place, and if I ever catch anyone doing this in our church who says, I will pay attention to you, I will love you, I I will treat you like a human being if foul. You don't, you're in the wrong place. You've, you're confused. You've got it twisted. Jesus sees us. He hears us. He values us. He says, I love you. I'm perfectly aware of your pain and who you want to be and how you're tempted to constantly cover up. And I've come to tell you, I see you and I love you. Not despite you, just because I love you. Period. That's what we're building. That's who we are. That's, that's the family of God. And he says, now I want to begin to change you. Can I show you guys something? Ben, Josh, can you guys come up here real quick, please? <laughs> I want to show you something. I want to show you something. Yeah, yeah, up here. Okay, this, this is... Can I stand in between you guys? So these are a couple of brothers. Oh, we're going to hold hands. Can we hold hands? You guys okay with this? I just needed some support. I was just feeling like, you know, I don't really know if this is making sense. I'm feeling insecure. But I feel better now. Thank you. Okay. So anyways, what I was saying was, no, I'm kidding. Okay, here's the illustration. We come into the family of God. And Jesus, he demands we stop hiding. It's like he, he refuses to let us cover up. He just sees us. And it's, it's a very, very vulnerable feeling. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's especially terrifying when then we begin to experience Jesus in his body. You know, the New Testament describes Jesus' body, his hands and his feet, all of his body parts as people, brothers and sisters coming together. And so it's no longer just like, like floating head Jesus, Jesus in the abstract. He's got a body made up of actual people, real relationships, brothers who could like actually hurt me. They could reject me. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so Jesus places us in his body. And he, he has us grab hands like this. And I, I want to hide myself. I want to cover up. And I just, I just want to kind of... And it's hard, though, because now I'm in a relationship. People can actually see me. There's proximity. There's vulnerability. And eventually, inevitably, it can become so overwhelming. I can can feel so uncomfortably vulnerable that I will make a run for it. I will try to, I will, and I hope to God that these brothers that I'm walking with won't let me do it. They won't let me, they won't, no, Ben, seriously. No, 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 Ben, really. Ben, stop it. No. <laughs> it worked. It worked. And so we get into relationships and we begin to walk together. We begin to walk in the light, confessing our sins to one another. And instead of trying to cover up, instead of asking the people to come, like, I just need you to, like, tell me I'm okay. And Jesus says, no, you're not okay. You're broken. You're desperately broken. Now, I'm going to put you in a relationship, and I'm going to begin to do a very hard, painful, deep, wonderful, whole work of healing in your life. And you're going to want to run. You're going to want to cover up. But I'm going to bring people around you who can actually see you and walk with you. Vulnerability 
is literally one of the most terrifying things you can ever engage with in life. And it's how Jesus heals us. It's the paradox of his love. That's all. Thanks, guys. And these guys, that wasn't actually just an illustration. These are a couple of brothers, among others, who, who I am walking in covenant relationship with. There are things in my life that they know about that in a way feels like they should not know about. Like it's just, it just feels too personal. It's too, too, too scary. And it's wonderful. It's how Jesus heals us when we begin to say, here's what's going on. Now that you see me, you're going to reject me? You're going to hold on to me even tighter, love me even more, as Jesus does a work within me. You know, um, we sang this morning about the goodness of God. Did we not? Psalm 136 says that I will sing of the goodness of God. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. When God created humanity, Adam, man, he said it was good. It was very good. He created man in his image, and he said this is very good. Except for one thing. There was one thing that was not good, and all of the goodness of God and the super goodness of his creation, humanity and his image, the one thing that was not good is that the man was alone. The human was alone. Does that sound good? It means that's the one part of who we are that does not reflect the actual very good image of God is when we find ourselves alone is when the self, the beauty of the unique individual gets elevated to the autonomous self that Jesus teaches us to deny so that we can walk in vulnerable, being known relationship with him and others. Our individuality has become demonic when we use it as an excuse to elevate self-expression over vulnerable relationship with God and others. And that is a really hard thing to pull off. It's a really hard thing to pull off. And God gives us the grace to do just that. He is good, and it is good to walk in vulnerable relationship with other. In that respect, this is the last thing I'll say. In fact, can I invite the worship team to join us up front um, as we prepare for baptism. Because God's goodness, the person that he's made us to be is fulfilled in God's vision of relationship, communion becomes a fundamental, fundamental ontological category for being human. Communion, intimacy with one another, 
becomes a fundamental ontological category for personhood, for being. Not being autonomous, but being in vulnerable relationship with each other. That's God's vision, being. Not because I can think, not because I can objectify, not because I can use the knowledge that I've acquired to gain mastery over the external world around me. Myself is no longer found from looking deep inside. It's realized by being in vulnerable relationship with others, with God and others. And so that's our vision for personhood. When we come together into God's family and we can say to each other, it's okay. I want to see you. I promise not to reject you. I don't care how ugly you think you are or however many people have done it before. In fact, if the church has done it to you a thousand times, may I be the first to repent on behalf of my brothers and sisters. I'm so sorry that the church has treated you that way and forced you to feel like you need to hide because that is not the family of God. Now can I invite you to take my hand? I'm gonna hold on as tight as you'll let me. And as Jesus begins to peel back the layers of your soul and reveal the idols in your heart, the things that you've constructed identities around, the autonomous self that you've, you've erected over communion with others, as Jesus begins to pry these things out of your hands and expose you in a way that's gonna freak you out to the core because you're exposed, because now you're seen, someone's actually starting to know you in the most wonderfully terrifying way. Can I promise you I'm not gonna let you go? You're gonna to have to cut off my hands because if you go, who, 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 where, where does that leave me? That's what Jesus is up to in his family. It's the beauty of the individual person and the radical adventure of denying the autonomous self and walking in sacrificial love. Can we stand together, please? So what do you guys think? Was that, was that a bit of a, an exegetical stretch from Nehemiah 3? So it makes sense to me. So we have a couple of brothers who are gonna get baptized this morning. Talk about a picture. Uh, baptism's not something you can do to yourself. It requires hands, a, a person that you surrender your life into. Like you could die, you, they could leave you underwater. I reckon some people need to stay under longer than others. Is that, does that sound theologically right? It's this beautiful picture of surrendering, dying to self, losing your life, that we might be raised up with Jesus, forgiven, filled with his love, welcomed home into his family. And it's not done by yourself alone in some like, you know, spiritual retreat someplace with no one around. It's like this family occasion, the brothers and sisters, the kids of God begin to celebrate as one surrenders their life in the hands of another. So if you're getting baptized this morning, this is your moment if you need to get changed. 
can be practical for a second. You can run downstairs, put on your swim trunks, whatever you have. Um, if you're like, nah, I'm fine. I'm going to do it in my trousers. Good on you. Um, we're going to worship Jesus. And then when this song is, is over, meet me up front. We're going to baptize you. Let's worship. Thank you.